Section 13 of the Normans in Europe by Arthur Henry Johnson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 9 Feudal System and Monasticism, 800 to 1050, Part 2. The castle is also tenanted by his retainers of varying rank. His vassal's sons come here to learn their knightly duties and the use of their weapons with the children of their lord. The seneschal, marshal, the chamberlain, the butler, men of honorable birth, complete the circle within the walls. At the foot of the castle lie the humble homesteads of the villains, and hard by perhaps the feudal chase, where the lord preserves the deer with loving care and leads forth his retainers to the hunt. We can now understand the effect of such a life upon the character of its inmates. By it, the ties of domestic life were intensified. The lord, living as he did within the castle, surrounded by his wife and his children and his retainers, was drawn close to them. He learnt to look upon his children, especially his eldest son, as the inheritors of his name and power, and therefore he took a pride in them, while the children, accustomed to their father's presence, learned to love and obey. The position of the wife as mistress of the castle in her lord's absence was raised, she acquired dignity and commanded respect, while her influence over her children was beneficially exercised. Thus in every way domestic virtues were advanced. To this end chivalry also tended. With much exaggeration and folly, at least it fostered the principles of honor and of justice, formed a school of moral discipline, and indirectly improved the position of women, whose cause every knight swore at his initiation to support. Hence poetry and romance took form. These, while they threw a false splendor around the feudal character and obscured the glaring inconsistencies, the misery which surrounded the feudal castle, at least paved the way for literary and artistic refinement. Lastly, to the relations which existed between the lord and his retainers may be traced the origin of the principle of loyalty. Such were some of the benefits which society owes to feudalism. But their influence was often weak and intermittent, and they were sadly marred by glaring defects. The tie which bound the vassal to his lord was ever weak, and the religious bond once gone, isolation set in. Every feudal noble who could build a castle shut himself within its walls and defied his neighbors and his overlord. Living an idle, useless life, he found excitement only in the chase or in wild, reckless adventure. Hence society was sacrificed to the individual. The disruptive tendencies became predominant. Feudal independence arose and developed into anarchy, and a state of chronic warfare ensued which we have so often seen illustrated in the history of Normandy. Meanwhile, the gulf between classes became wider. It was the object of every feudal lord to gain independence from his suzerain, and then to crush out all beneath him. Before them the lesser nobles fell and tyranny increased. Amidst this selfish struggle of the nobles, the interest of the lower classes was neglected, they never had found any real place within the narrow circle of feudalism. Its humanizing influence stopped at the night, and the villain was scarce regarded as a fellow Christian. 
In early times, perhaps his condition, though servile, was bearable. But as the isolation between classes and aristocratic pride advanced, it grew rapidly worse. The gulf between the military and non-military classes, a term synonymous with noble and ignoble, grew wider every day, and justice became the right of the strongest. The continual anarchy which prevailed added to their misery. While the noble shut himself up in his castle, his villains fell a victim to his enemies and saw their lands and homes harried by a cruel, ruthless soldiery. Now and then the villains rose as in the famous insurrection of the peasants in 997, only to find that the nobles, generally so disunited, were at one in their determination to crush out their liberties and to reduce them to abject slavery. Against this senseless strife and class isolation, the church protested feebly. Here and there a town arose and extorted privileges from its lord, but for the lower classes and for any further advance, the only hope lay in the establishment of royal power and the subjection of those petty tyrannies to the despotism of one. How far feudalism was at this date established in Normandy, it is impossible in the absence of all contemporary evidence to say. When Rollo invaded Normandy, the feudalizing process had already begun, and in the relations which existed between the Norman dukes and the Carolings or Capetian kings respectively, we see the evident traces of the feudal idea. But the dependence of Normandy on Paris was never great, and Norman pride was continually displayed in assertions that her dukes held Normandy of none higher sovereign in chief but of God. The introduction of feudal government within the duchy has been ascribed to Richard the Fearless. Perhaps it was not perfected until after the conquest of England. All that we know of the government of Normandy, anterior to that date, has thus been briefly summed up. The duke ruled as a personal sovereign with the advice of a council of great men. Under him were a number of barons who owed their position to the possession of land for which they were under feudal obligations to him, and which they took every opportunity of discarding. Their nobility was derived partly from Norse descent, partly from connection with the ducal family to which most of them were related, and they were thus kept faithful partly by a sense of interest partly by the strong hand of their master. The population of cultivators lived under the aristocracy, Gallic in extraction, Frank in law and custom, and speaking the Romance language which had been created by their early history. These were in strict dependence on their lords, though with some faint remembrance of the comparative freedom which they had enjoyed under the Frank Empire and perhaps enjoyed greater privileges than their equals elsewhere in France, while within the towns some commercial prosperity and a strong commercial feeling subsisted which broke forth now and then as in the city of Le Mans in 1073. Nothing but the personal character of the duke prevented the territory thus lightly held from dismemberment. The strong hand had gathered all the great fiefs into the hands of kinsmen, whose fidelity was secured by the right of the duke to garrison their castles, and whose tyrannies were limited by the right of the duke to enforce his own peace. Their attempts at independence led to continual quarrels and were checked by ruthless bloodshed. 
In the history of Normandy during the early life of William, we see the two conflicting principles well illustrated which at that time divided Europe and in later days were once to be united in the Crusades. On the one hand, there was the love of excitement and adventure, often degenerating into ferocity, fostered by feudalism itself, which led to expeditions to foreign lands in search of plunder and fresh conquest, or found a worse outlet in promoting anarchy at home. On the other, there was the strong religious enthusiasm, which now that the dread of the millennium had passed, took shape in renewed activity. Hence the increasing passion for pilgrimages to the Holy Land, hence the proclamation of the truce of God, an attempt to check the anarchy and rapine of private war by the terrors of ecclesiastical censure. By this, at first, all private war whatsoever was forbidden, but subsequently, as published in Normandy, the prohibition was limited to half the week. From the evening of Wednesday to the morning of Monday, no violence of any kind was allowed. The days of Christ's supper, passion, and resurrection were at least to be kept from bloodshed. Not the least important outcome of the religious enthusiasm of the day is to be found in the great revival of the Benedictine rule and the accompanying rapid growth of monasteries and perfection of architecture in Normandy. It seemed, says an old chronicler, as if the world were awakening and casting off its ancient rags were clothing itself anew in a white robe of churches. When first the northern pirates invaded Gaul, churches and monasteries had been alike destroyed. Under Rollo's descendants these ravages were repaired, and the dukes of Normandy became the most beneficent patrons of ecclesiastical foundations. The famous house of Jumiege, which Hasting the pirate had destroyed, had been restored by William Longsword. Fécamp and Mont-Saint-Michel owed their foundation to Richard the Fearless, 943-956. And under Richard the Good, who himself was a great restorer, the movement spread to the nobles. It soon became the custom of every great lord to have a monastery on his domain. Thus Normandy grew to be the richest country in the world for ecclesiastical foundations and the home of the rising Gothic architecture, which borrowed from the southern plains of Lombardy, here reached its most vigorous growth. William himself, during his later years in Normandy, founded two abbeys at Caen and showed himself a munificent patron of ecclesiastical foundations. Yet the most important foundation at that time, that of Beck in 1034, was not due to the patronage of the great, but to the individual energy and devotion of a simple knight. Eloin had in early life been a vassal of Count Gilbert of Brionne, and a prominent actor in the clannish quarrels of the time. Wearied of the secular life, he at last refused to execute some service for his lord which he thought unjust. In revenge, the count ravaged his lands and those of his tenants. Erluin, summoned to his lord's court, only pleaded for his poor tenants and demanded nothing for himself. When asked what he really wished, by loving this world, said he, and by obeying man, I have hitherto much neglected God and myself. I have been altogether intent on training my body, 
and I have gained no education for my soul. If I have ever deserved well of thee, let me pass what remains of life in a monastery. Let me keep thy love, and with me give to God what I had of thee. The Count, touched by his words, granted him his wish. Erluin, receiving ordination, retired to the wild neighborhood of Brionne, collected a devoted band of men who, like himself, were flying from the world, and finally built his monastery upon the banks of a beck in the valley of Brionne, near the forest of that name. The cloister at first of wood was destroyed by a storm. This, attributed to the malicious enmity of Satan, did not cast down the energy of the monks of Beck. Again they set to work, and built it this time of stone. Such were the small beginnings of Beck, founded on the Benedictine form. Erluin himself had not learned to read till the age of forty, and his monks were illiterate men. Thus Beck might have remained an obscure and humble monastery, but for the accidental arrival of a stranger, who changed its fortunes and its history. Lanfranc, a native of Pavia, had gained great renown as a student of civil law in that university, then famous for her imperial leanings and her schools of Roman law. Attracted perhaps by the fame of the Norman name, he wandered across the Alps and founded a school at Avranches in the Cotentin. This journey of Lanfranc may serve to illustrate the all-embracing character of Norman civilization, which for years attracted the best minds of Europe. Hitherto, Lanfranc's learning had been wholly secular, but now he fell under the influence of the religious movement in Normandy. Seized one day in 1042 by lawless men on his way to Rouen, he was robbed and left bound to a tree in the forest near the monastery of Beck. Night came on, and he tried to pray, but no psalm or office rose to his lips. Lord, he cried, I have spent all this time in worn-out body and mind and learning, and now when I ought to praise thee, I can remember nothing. Deliver me from my need, and with thy help I will so correct and frame my life, that henceforth I may serve thee. Released next morning by some passer-by, he asked the way to the humblest monastery near, and was directed to Beck. There, prostrating himself before Erluin, he begged to be received as a monk and accepted the rigorous discipline of his rule. The monastery of Erluin, founded after the most severe model of St. Benedict, had no place for learning. Worship and prayer, work and meditation, were alone allowed. But Erluin soon found that this would not suit the mind of Langfranc, and by his leave, Langfranc began to teach. People soon flocked to hear his lectures. He rapidly rose to the position of prior, and under him, Beck became the most famous school in Christendom and one of the intellectual centers of Europe. Under Lanfranc, says a chronicler, the Normans first fathomed the art of letters, for under the six dukes of Normandy scarcely anyone among the Normans applied himself to liberal studies, nor was there any teaching found till God, the provider of all things, brought Lanfranc to Normandy. Lanfranc had come to Beck a scholar of civil law, but he then abandoned all secular studies and devoted himself to theology. As prior of Beck, he became the prominent theologian 
and stood forth the champion of the church in her controversy with Berengarius on the doctrine of the Eucharist. From this day forth, Beck became the foremost of Norman monasteries and counted among her children three archbishops of Canterbury. The monasteries of that date formed the most important social machinery of the times. The monks were the best agriculturalists of the day and the pioneers of civilization. Settling in some unreclaimed spot, they made a clearing of the forest, tilled the lands, whilst their monastery formed a nucleus round which the farmers might settle. It thus became the school for the children, the hospital for the sick, the almshouse for the poor, the inn for the traveller. Nor was this all. Here alone were any remains of the ancient classics or Latin fathers preserved. Here alone the pursuits of learning and of the finer arts were followed. Here church music, the writing and illumination of missals, bell-founding, organ-building were pursued. Here, lastly, lived the chroniclers, to whom we are indebted for nearly all that we know of those days. It was chiefly through their agency that such literary intercourse as then existed was maintained. In the absence of printing, and owing to the scarcity of manuscripts, the only way of acquiring knowledge was by sitting at the feet of some great scholar. Hence, aspirants after learning wandered over Europe, from monastery to monastery or school to school, and Europe was drawn together. It was thence that all the great movements for regenerating society and the church came. End of section 13